Welcome to another episode of One Simple Question, the podcast that asks a very basic and everyday question about a person that then delves into a unique and decidedly non-basic answer. My guest for this episode was Min Do. Min was introduced to me by a friend who, oddly enough, met him on a dating app. Though things did not work out between them, my friend found him so interesting that she introduced him to me for this conversation. The chat with Min was during a visit to LA where he currently lives, and we met up at his house and started to get to know each other, because this was literally the first time we ever met. Thanks for inviting me into your your bonus room. (laughs) So, Min, first time we're meeting. When we talked on the phone, what you had told me about your life was just really fascinating, because you are not the kind of person that has just one story. There seemed to be a litany of stories that have gotten you through various times of your life. Can you just start us off a little bit about yourself? What do you do right now? Like, where are you in life? Yeah, so my name is Min. I, uh, I'm a writer. I live in LA now. I just moved here about a month ago. But I'm originally from California. I don't know if there's interesting detail or not, but I studied at the University of California, Santa Cruz, focused on Buddhist studies. Is that the banana slugs? That's banana slugs. That's right. Got it. That actually leads me to this question that gets into your life. What did you do after you graduated? It kind of has to be started with right before I graduated, I was living from what the end of sophomore year to senior year in this large house that was kind of like a commune. We were about, I don't know, anywhere from eight to 10 people, depending on the time. We're all really into meditation and Buddhism and new age and all that. I guess that as well as my studies kind of compelled me to, I was just really into enlightenment or what I think better described as awakening. And so I thought that was like my mission for life. I was really, I'd drink in the Buddhist Kool-Aid and I really wanted to be a monk. And so right after university, I ended up living in a, a meditation center for about a year. And I sat like eight or nine, I guess, uh, meditation, 10 day meditation uh, courses. Um, and I was like serving and living there before, you know, that all kind of came to a, a screeching halt. I want to talk about the screeching halt in a minute, but you say you were there doing eight or nine courses, were you effectively training to become a monk? I mean, I think, yeah, in a way, in my own way, because I thought meditation was like the hardest thing I'd ever encountered. The monk's life appealed to me because the entire focus of it was becoming awakened in this life because I felt I wasn't quite sure if like there is any such thing as reincarnation or or that if I was reincarnated, it'd be, I'd end up as a dog or something and I'd be stuck for <laughs> millennia. So, I was like, this is it. And this whole training of meditation was all preparation for me to to take all the vows that a monk takes because I'd met so many monks prior. Yeah. You mentioned it came to a screeching halt. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, so after the meditation center, my one of my friends and I, we we went on this trip and we filmed a documentary where we met, I don't know, maybe over a hundred Vietnamese American monks in California. And I'd met a lot of Zen, you know, and Zen is kind of a, in a weird place in California because a lot of the masters came here and then they died. And so, I met a lot of Zen people and I met a lot of Tibetan people. And then I met a lot of Burmese. So, I, I felt like I'd experienced quite a bit of the range of Buddhism in California. And so, I always kind of had this feeling that, oh, Tibetan has the most powerful masters for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe because they have that mystique. And so, I was like, okay, I need to find a Tibetan master. And I found this one master. And he was in part recommended to me by my 
professor. And so I felt, okay, this guy, you know, has going on. I, I developed a good relationship with the head monk there. He knew that I wanted to be a monk. I told him and he kind of encouraged me to ask the master. And when I finally got an audience with him, I just felt, yes, clearly this guy is very powerful. There's something inside of him that I don't know. That's something profound. I don't know if he's enlightened or whatever or not, but clearly there's something with him that is very powerful and maybe he can see through me. Ultimately, that was kind of like my sense. And so, when I finally got into a private audience with him, I asked him, you know, what, uh, what do you think of me? Can I become a monk? And he said, give it four years and, uh, and come back to me and talk. And, you know, that never came to pass. <laughs> I haven't seen the head monk since, even though I keep in contact with him, you know, and that kind of ended that journey. I guess I just kind of put all my cards into that interview and I was like, okay, this is, this ends that journey. It's still, this thing is really important to me, but I feel like I was like removing myself from the world and now I feel like, okay, now I'm, I'm coming back into the world. And You felt like you were re-entering the world. In a way, yeah, because I felt like the great thing about monkhood was that I was removing myself because... I think there was a, a series of things that compelled me into Buddhism in the first place. But I think at a certain point, maybe I realized that because the master saw through me. When the master said to you, come back in four years, what do you think he meant to tell you to continue to grow, to re-enter the world, to continue studying? It, it might even have been a pat answer. You know, it might have even have been just like a test of my commitment. And so, in a way, probably the master was like, look, you know, do this practice. He gave me like some practices to do for four years and come back, you know, and talk to me. And so, you know, I probably didn't live up to that. Otherwise, he'd probably be like, yeah, you, you know, it'll make you a monk on the spot, you know, because that has, that has also happened. So, you didn't reach back out four years later. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that uh, as we get on because that was how many years ago? About 15 years ago or so. Okay. So, about 15 years ago. So, no. it would be interesting to see no. what you think of yourself now but i want to i want to find out because that was 15 years ago we have a lot of ground to cover what yeah. did you do after you've decided that you are not going to pursue the monk route so my f my grandfather was vice minister of education of southern vietnam and so during that time he interacted with a lot of academics and one of the people that he mentored or was his colleague was this guy who was a chancellor in a university in the Mekong Delta. And so that's one thread. Another thread is that my parents both have been doing nonprofit work in Vietnam since I was like not even born yet. And around when I was 17, I think, or 16, I, they organized a conference for all the nonprofit doing work for Vietnam, but based in California or America. So they all kind of gathered annually. And at one of the conferences, one of the first conferences, I wrote a poem about being Vietnamese. And Vietnamese American and grappling with the identity of not knowing where you are. And it got a standing ovation at that conference. And it happened to be that that chancellor that I mentioned earlier was there. And because of that poem, he came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you should come to my university and, and work. And he had his students translate the poem into Vietnamese and stuff. I wish I had it. It's all gone now. But Oh, okay. So, you started working at this university in Vietnam. Yeah. After that, what were you doing there? Well, kind of generic stuff. Like I was just teaching English. <laughs> so, you moved from the US to Vietnam, country that you're somewhat familiar with, I imagine not intimately familiar with like you would be with California, but moved there three and a half years of doing 
I guess professor work, let's call it that. Uh, you were teaching English. Uh, you're not a teacher of English now in Vietnam. No. What happened after that? Yeah, more like a lecturer. Lecturer, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I think towards the end of my university stint, I started to see there was like a threshold to how much I could do and how much I could make. I had really close friends in Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon. And so, I moved to Saigon. And that kind of started that kind of journey of like kind of peppered with different things I was doing. And there was, I worked in an education startup, then working in a tourism company. And then I was a professional musician for like a year. And then I became a journalist. So that was all like in a five-year period. Hang on. That's yeah. a lot of stuff for a five-year period. Let's, uh, let's go back. One thing that caught my ear, you, musician, you're a professional musician. What yeah. do you play? I play violin, rock and roll, jazz, blues. I like the blues the most. Okay. Yeah. So, you're a rock and roll, jazz, blues, violinist, professional musician with a band, I'm assuming? Yeah, it was a big band. What, I would say one of the top bands in, in Vietnam. Oh, wow. Yeah. In terms, just in terms of like contractual bands for events, not like top bands. Now, I mean, the music scene in Vietnam is busting, but we were never, we were like, you know, maybe the top cover band that companies would hire, I would say. So, you yeah. are a professional musician in Vietnam. I'm guessing that's not something that you just did and stopped. It, it was something you kept in the background, sort of just did. Well, it is bizarre because the whole reason why I got into being a musician was because I very abruptly quit a job that I, the tourism job that I was in. And it was just because I knew that that job, I loved my boss. He was amazing. But I realized that I didn't want to, just, that just wasn't where I wanted to go. And I think I had this creative edge that I wanted to kind of foster, but I didn't know what that looked like at all. So, I just kind of jumped off a cliff. And I think at the end of the day, I'm a musician. And so, I always had that in my back pocket and that just kind of fell together. So, I like I met my friend who, who I was hosting a lot of open mics and mic nights and he hired me into the band. And, you know, we'd go all over the region, Indonesia, Bali, Cambodia, up and down Vietnam, playing in like different venues and even jazz fests and things like that. Oh, wow. For, yeah, and that was good. That was, it was relatively lucrative. And you mentioned briefly that you had been a journalist. You, you haven't yet mentioned any sort of journalism degree, um, but you were a journalist out there as well. How, how did that happen? Yeah, so I guess I've always been a writer. I mean, my mom always kind of made me, made me write when I was a kid. And so, throughout the time period that I was in Vietnam, I was writing a lot. And it just happened to be that when I was playing music, I was also writing a lot. And it was a kind of early days in Vietnam where the internet was coming up. Maybe it was only 10 million people were online or something, maybe 20. And blogging was kind of in fashion globally, I would say. And so, I was blogging a lot. And I felt that there was like this weird space of like people writing about touristic things to do in Vietnam and people kind of crapping on Vietnam. And I kind of, for whatever reason, I wrote this post in response to a bunch of other people on Twitter and it just blew up. You know, I got thousands of views and I got translated to Vietnamese. And I just happened to get into this whole loop of bloggers at the time that were kind of representing their countries. And I got invited to all these different conferences that represented Vietnam and that was amazing. Especially it was very bizarre as a Vietnamese American and I get to go out and represent Vietnam. Represent Vietnam. Yeah. And be kind of like me, the Indian American who has not ever really lived in India being suddenly the person who's like representing India at some big 
Commonwealth Conference. Like, why are yeah. you? Yeah, exactly. Um, it was hilarious. Uh, I have a friend who represents represented India in the Olympics, mm-hmm. uh, though he's an American but of Indian heritage. So that's great. <laughs> it works out well. <laughs> okay, so you're a journalist. Oh, so so sorry. So basically, yeah, sorry. The blo- because I was blogging so much, I was on the radar of people writing about Vietnam for whatever reason. Got it. And Tech in Asia, this company that I worked for, which just came knocking at Vietnam, was looking for people who knew tech and who were good writers. And I just kind of fit that bill almost perfectly because I was I was kind of also tired of music because that scene. And I love artists and artistry, and I still play music a lot, but. I'm just not. I'm just not a musician. That's just not my scene, right? It's a lot of drinking. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like there were nights where I would wake up and I, I wouldn't know where my violin was, and I had to, you know, backtrack which bars I was at to figure out where my violin was. <laughs> yeah. So Tech in Asia came knocking, and it just so happened that I had been organizing a lot of tech events as well as these music events and playing music, and it just kind of was a perfect coalescence because my father's an engineer. Uh, I'd always been involved in tech in some way, so it was perfect. So what what did you cover the tech journalism scene? Yeah, mostly? I just I covered tech in Vietnam okay. generally and in Southeast Asia. As I started to travel around and get to know what's happening across the region, started to get a feel for okay, you know what what are Thai entrepreneurs doing? What are Indonesian entrepreneurs? So by the time that whole stint came to an end, I was and and I feel still am relatively like aware of what's happening as in the tech space across Southeast Asia as a region. And that was kind of a fascinating window, you know, as just living in Vietnam, I'd slowly, slowly, and slowly become more and more aware of Southeast Asia rather than just Vietnam, which I think was interesting because most Vietnamese Americans, I mean, first of all, most Vietnamese Americans have, I want to say, dubious is not the right word, but kind of (laughs) dubious relationship with Vietnam as most immigrant communities do, right? Because of, say, the war in this case or whatever it is. And so... When I went back to Vietnam, it was kind of like, oh, you know what? Vietnam isn't just this country that has a relationship with America. It's a country that is surrounded by other countries which also have their own histories. And so, that was a big awakening for me. And I think that's what ultimately led me into venture capital in some ways because I felt that journalism was always only like knee deep. Wait, hang on. You you just jumped to another job. Yeah. You went to venture capital in yeah. Southeast Asia. Yeah. New job here. Yeah, so I moved to Singapore. Okay. After and uh, after a series of events, including the death of my father, getting married, <laughs> and I'm going to stop you real quick here. Yeah. The death of your father. Yeah. The marriage and yeah. moving to a VC job in a new city. Yeah. All, all happened year. in the same year. Yeah. How did you find the energy to do that many th- or deal with that many things in one year? Well, uh, stuff. Well, you know, it's, I forgot. Even I also had a miscarriage. We, my my ex wife and I had a, had a miscarriage. Wow. So it was like miscarriage, death of my father, then change of job, then change of city from away from Vietnam, which I spent eight years in. But to be honest, like when the death of my father hit, that was like so earth shattering. That whole year was uh, autopilot. I couldn't really make decisions in some ways. You know, I, there was a part of me that was tired of journalism to a certain extent because I was feeling like it wasn't, I wasn't getting the full picture into tech, right? But at the same time, I was just kind of on this roller coaster, emotional roller coaster ride because, you know, I mean, I was also very close to my father 
And so that will, and he also, my, you know, big detail here, I forgot to mention, but my father and my mother also moved to Vietnam. We all kind of came around the same period. And so that was tough because my father and I kind of got to know Vietnam together. That in itself was kind of a beautiful thing to be able to experience with my father. Uh, on the topic of your father passing away and him living with you in Vietnam, do you think that was a big impetus for you wanting to leave as well? True impetus of leaving was that my wife at the time got a job and that was kind of way for both of us to kind of advance our careers in a way. Journalism was def definitely kind of ending for me in some ways. There wasn't a huge amount of opportunity in Singapore to do that. We haven't really gotten to how you ended up here in LA yet. So, yeah. uh, so we have a VC world in Singapore. How'd you end up here? How'd I end up in LA? <laughs> Uh, it's also very complicating. So I'm getting the sense that a lot of these things were complicated. Yeah, you've just had a lot of complicated uh, yeah. situations, which that is to me very fascinating. Uh, as a quick aside, I don't think many people in the world have faced as many complicated situations that you've done, and also then taking the paths that you've taken. Yeah. A lot of times, we would get, be given the opportunity, see that's very complicated, think I can't be bothered, and not do it. Whereas you seem to have this tact and I do want to ask more questions about that later but aside from that you're in LA now you were yeah. a VC in Singapore you mentioned ex-wife I'm assuming the marriage ended yeah I mean just to kind of bookend to what you were talking about I mean I think in at least in my life I definitely have found that in major transitionary points I've taken the route of like moving a location or moving something in my life to coincide with it 2019 was very brutal because 2018 ended with us having a, my ex-wife and I having a, a miscarriage, another a second miscarriage. A second. And so that, you know, miscarriages are tough. And they're very common too. That's very common. Yeah, the very thing common. we never talk about is how often right. a miscarriage can happen, but two of them is a lot. Yeah, two is a lot. And that's obviously in and of itself very tough to deal with. She was also going to Stanford at the time and I was still in Singapore. I mean, not to go too much into the relationship, but there were a lot of issues, including like a lack of planning and a lack of communication, I think, that went into kind of exacerbating the relationship and ultimately leading into its end. Over the course of the marriage, more people in my life died, right? Yeah. It was like my father, then my grandmother, my mom's closest uncle, my mom's best friend, or one of her best friends. And so, like a series of people also passed away. And that further, like every time someone passed away... I was like further reminded of what I really wanted to do because after I left journalism, I was kind of like, what am I, get, what am I doing? I'm in venture capital. This is fascinating. I'm learning about it. But that, first of all, the firm itself wasn't great. And secondly, the, the place there I was at just wasn't fitting the creative energy that I needed. And I think that I was missing that energy that I felt when I was like professional musician, blogging and, and writing on my own. That, that, that was a very fervent fertile period for me. And I didn't know, I, I still am kind of coming to terms and, and realizing to what extent I was unaware of that part of myself kind of being pushed aside. Maybe because of the marriage, maybe because of the, the, the death of my father, a lot of things that I maybe have not, hadn't resolved. And so, when my grandfather passed away in 2019, that was like before the marriage had even come to an end, that was like almost like the last death in a series of deaths where I was just like, I need to prioritize this. I've been going to writing seminars. I've been doing a lot of writing myself, but I hadn't actually taken the jump yet. And so, 
as the marriage was kind of atrophying and we were kind of like figuring out whether we we're going to work it out or not, I was already thinking, okay, I need to commit to either New York or LA. I don't want to be in the Bay Area where tech is prominent and a lot of my family and my friends are there. So, it felt like too much of a cocoon. And I could see myself meeting my high school friends, my university friends and, and new friends and see myself kind of, I could just live this lifestyle. But I want to be in a place that where the, this, in my opinion, is like the biggest risk. LA is the biggest risk I've ever taken because I'm 35. I have no entertainment experience and it's raw. It's going to have to force me to adapt and change in the face of this big risk that I'm taking. Because maybe it is that, I, like you say, maybe it's a muscle. Like I have this risk appetite. Maybe now I'm like, okay, I'm willing to take a big risk. The last statement that you mentioned, which is the risk appetite you have. Would you call yourself a risk tolerant person? If I were to label you, I would say you have an ability to do risky things more comfortably than I think even I can. And I have a, I'm a person who's also left the country that they live in. Mm, that's a good question. I, I guess two things I think about when I think about your question just now is that how I play poker and how I mess with people. I like to play poker and the way that I play poker is generally once in a while, I'll just, I'll go all in even when I have no idea, even maybe even what I have. I think maybe that is more concrete. But I also think when I interact socially with people, I tend to be quite provocative in a way that can tend to turn people off. Like I tend to like to provoke people. And maybe that is an overlap with how I live my life. So for me, that's the framework. It's not risk. Mm. It's more like poking at but I do feel like, I mean, death being a big theme, I mean, I think that most people, including myself, don't take death very seriously. We kind of, and even when we talk, say it, like even now as I say it, it sounds like it's serious, but I don't really feel it all that palpably. Maybe once in a while I do, and it kind of wakes me up a little bit. But I wish that I put that more at the center of my like day-to-day, moment-to-moment existence. Last two questions for you. The first one is the lead-in from our beginning of our conversation. Four years have passed since trying to become a monk. Do you think that's at all in the cards anymore? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I figured this much. The the more interesting question, I think, though, is what's next? What's next? I have no idea. I mean, well, I've I've committed. I've committed myself. We'll see if I follow through to ten years in LA because I gave ten years to tech. And so, I'd like to give 10 years to, to LA. And tech uh, was a very long journey for me to understand it and to come to understand how the community works and what do I love about it? What do I hate about it? Like now, when I look at tech, I, you know, the things that I love about it are oh, people are, they're so pragmatic and they're problem solvers. But there's also a lot of this hype and entitlement and it is also an ivory, or not an ivory tower, but it's also like basically a the spearhead of the business universe. And so I, I feel dubious about the embracing of tech as a salute world solver when it actually perpetuates, you know, the system that that kind of creates a lot of problems in the world. I always end up falling out of love with something, you know. I can't mm. help it. I always end up falling out of love with a community or an industry or something, and so. I, Hollywood and entertainment industry is fascinating and new to me. And I know already that I'm going to fall out of love with it eventually, if not already. My question would be, what do you want to do in Hollywood? 
Yeah, I guess the funny thing is I have always wanted to be a world builder, even when I was like a kid. So I always kind of admired like Gene Roddenberry, George Lucas, and all these guys who who could build a world that other writers wrote inside of, and like Tolkien and all these guys. And so I think that's where I want to be eventually. Who knows if it'll ever come to pass. But what I really want to be able to do is build a world, science fiction ideally, where other writers can write inside of and can play with me and use it as a vehicle for playing with a lot of provocative ideas that I think are important. That was Min Do, a professional chameleon who seems to have done a little bit of everything. As someone who likes to think of himself as a jack of many trades, I realize I can't even remotely hold a candle to him. So thanks, Min, for the great conversation, and a special thanks to my friend Sharda for going on an unsuccessful date with him, but still introducing us anyways. The next time life throws you an opportunity that you're unsure about, but you really want to do, I hope you remember the way that Min decided to tackle it. Just trying to do new things can be really difficult, but it's always impressive to see somebody successful, even if in their minds they're still working hard. I'm excited to see what Min's life brings him next. That's it for today's story. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, you can subscribe to get the latest updates anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment and you're feeling generous, please leave a review. I'd really appreciate it, and it helps me understand how to make this show even better. For more info on me and this concept, you can visit our website at onesimplequestion.co. One Simple Question is hosted by me, Abhishek Lahoti. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you tune in again soon, and bye for now.